Chapter 5, Part 1 of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume 1. By Charles Mackay. Modern Prophecies, Part 1. An epidemic terror of the end of the world has several times spread over the nations. The most remarkable was that which seized Christendom about the middle of the tenth century. Numbers of fanatics appeared in France, Germany, and Italy at that time, preaching that the thousand years prophesied in the Apocalypse, as the term of the world's duration, were about to expire, and that the Son of Man would appear in the clouds to judge the godly and the ungodly. The delusion appears to have been discouraged by the church, but it nevertheless spread rapidly among the people. The scene of the last judgment was expected to be at Jerusalem. In the year 999, the number of pilgrims proceeding eastward to await the coming of the Lord in that city was so great that they were compared to a desolating army. Most of them sold their goods and possessions before they quitted Europe, and lived upon the proceeds in the Holy Land. Buildings of every sort were suffered to fall into ruins. It was thought useless to repair them when the end of the world was so near. Many noble edifices were deliberately pulled down. Even churches, usually so well maintained, shared the general neglect. Knights, citizens, and serfs travelled eastwards in company, taking with them their wives and children, singing psalms as they went, and looking with tearful eyes upon the sky, which they expected each minute to open, to let the Son of God descend in His glory. During the thousandth year the number of pilgrims increased. Most of them were smitten with terror as with a plague. Every phenomenon of nature filled them with alarm. A thunderstorm sent them all upon their knees in mid-march. It was the opinion that thunder was the voice of God, announcing the day of judgment. Numbers expected the earth to open and give up its dead at the sound. Every meteor in the sky seen at Jerusalem brought the whole Christian population into the streets to weep and pray. The pilgrims on the road were in the same alarm. Quote, Lorsque, pendant la nuit, une globe de lumière s'échappa quelquefois de la foute de cieux et traça dans sa chute un long silon de feu, la troupe suspendit sa marche solitaire. End quote. Footnote. Charlemagne, poème épique par Lucien Bonaparte. End footnote. Fanatic preachers kept up the flame of terror. Every shooting star furnished occasion for a sermon in which the sublimity of the approaching judgment was the principal topic. The appearance of comets has been often thought to foretell the speedy dissolution of this world. Part of this belief still exists, but the comet is no longer looked upon as the sign, but the agent of destruction. So lately as in the year 1832, the greatest alarm spread over the continent of Europe, especially in Germany, lest the comet, whose appearance was then foretold by astronomers, should destroy the earth. The danger of our globe was gravely discussed. Many persons refrained from undertaking or concluding any business during that year, in consequence solely of their apprehension that this terrible comet would dash us and our world to atoms. During seasons of great pestilence, men have often believed the prophecies of crazed fanatics that the end of the world was come. Credulity is always greatest in times of calamity. 
during the great plague which ravaged all europe between the years thirteen hundred and forty five and thirteen hundred and fifty it was generally considered that the end of the world was at hand pretended prophets were to be found in all the principal cities of germany france and italy predicting that within ten years the trump of the archangel would sound and the saviour appear in the clouds to call the earth to judgment no little consternation was created in london in seventeen hundred and thirty six by the prophecy of the famous whiston that the world would be destroyed in that year on the thirteenth of october crowds of people went out on the appointed day to islington hampstead and the fields intervening to see the destruction of london which was to be the beginning of the end a satirical account of this folly is given in swift's miscellanies volume three entitled a true and faithful narrative of what passed in london on a rumour of the day of judgment an authentic narrative of this delusion would be interesting but this solemn witticism of pope and gay is not to be depended upon in the year seventeen hundred and sixty one the citizens of london were alarmed by two shocks of an earthquake and the prophecy of a third which was to destroy them altogether the first shock was felt on the eighth of february and threw down several chimneys in the neighbourhood of Limehouse and Poplar. The second happened on the 8th of March, and was chiefly felt in the north of London, and towards Hampstead and Highgate. It soon became the subject of general remark that there was exactly an interval of a month between the shocks, and a crack-brained fellow named Bell, a soldier in the lifeguards, was so impressed with the idea that there would be a third in another month, that he lost his senses altogether, and ran about the streets predicting the destruction of London on the 5th of April. Most people thought that the first would have been a more appropriate day, but there were not wanting thousands who confidently believed the prediction, and took measures to transport themselves and families from the scene of the impending calamity. As the awful day approached, the excitement became intense, and great numbers of credulous people resorted to all the villages within a circuit of twenty miles, awaiting the doom of London. Islington, Highgate, Hampstead, Harrow, and Blackheath were crowded with panic-stricken fugitives, who paid exorbitant prices for accommodation to the housekeepers of these secure retreats. Such as could not afford to pay for lodgings at any of those places remained in London until two or three days before the time, and then encamped in the surrounding fields, awaiting the tremendous shock which was to lay their high city all level with the dust. As happened during a similar panic in the time of Henry the Eighth. The fear became contagious, and hundreds who had laughed at the prediction a week before packed up their goods when they saw others doing so, and hastened away. The river was thought to be a place of great security, and all the merchant vessels in the port were filled with people who passed the night between the 4th and the 5th on board, expecting every instant to see St. Paul's totter, and the towers of Westminster Abbey rock in the wind and fall amid a cloud of dust. The greater part of the fugitives returned on the following day, convinced that the prophet was a false one, but many judged it more prudent to allow a week to elapse before they trusted their dear limbs in London. Bell lost all credit in a short time, and was looked upon even by the most credulous as a mere madman. He tried some other prophecies, but nobody was deceived by them, and, in a few months afterwards, he was confined in a lunatic asylum. A panic terror of the end of the world seized the good people of Leeds and its neighbourhood in the year 1806. It arose from the following circumstances. A hen in a village close by laid eggs, on which were inscribed the words, Christ is coming. Great numbers visited the spot, and examined these wondrous eggs, 
convinced that the day of judgment was near at hand. Like sailors in a storm, expecting every instant to go to the bottom, the believers suddenly became religious, prayed violently, and flattered themselves that they repented them of their evil courses. But a plain tale soon put them down, and quenched their religion entirely. Some gentlemen, hearing of the matter, went one fine morning, and caught the poor hen in the act of laying one of her miraculous eggs. They soon ascertained beyond doubt that the egg had been inscribed with some corrosive ink, and cruelly forced up again into the bird's body. At this explanation those who had prayed now laughed, and the world wagged as merrily as of yore. At the time of the plague in Milan, in 1630, of which so affecting a description has been left us by Ripamonte in his interesting work De Peste Mediolani, the people, in their distress, listened with avidity to the predictions of astrologers and other impostors. It is singular enough that the plague was foretold a year before it broke out. A large comet appearing in 1628, the opinions of astrologers were divided with regard to it. Some insisted that it was a forerunner of a bloody war. Others maintained that it predicted a great famine, but the greater number, founding their judgment upon its pale colour, thought it pretended a pestilence. The fulfilment of their prediction brought them into great repute while the plague was raging. Other prophecies were current, which were asserted to have been delivered hundreds of years previously. They had a most pernicious effect upon the mind of the vulgar, as they induced a belief in fatalism. By taking away the hope of recovery, that greatest balm in every malady, they increased threefold the ravages of the disease. One singular prediction almost drove the unhappy people mad. An ancient couplet, preserved for ages by tradition, foretold that in the year 1630 the devil would poison all Milan. Early one morning in April, and before the pestilence had reached its height, the passengers were surprised to see that all the doors of the principal streets of the city were marked with a curious daub or spot, as if a sponge, filled with the purulent matter of the plague sores, had been pressed against them. The whole population were speedily in movement to remark the strange appearance, and the greatest alarm spread rapidly. Every means was taken to discover the perpetrators, but in vain. At last the ancient prophecy was remembered, and prayers were offered up in all the churches, that the machinations of the evil one might be defeated. Many persons were of opinion that the emissaries of foreign powers were employed to spread infectious poison over the city, but by far the greater number were convinced that the powers of hell had conspired against them, and that the infection was spread by supernatural agencies. In the meantime the plague increased fearfully. Distrust and alarm took possession of every mind. Everything was believed to have been poisoned by the devil. The waters of the wells, the standing corn in the fields, and the fruit upon the trees. It was believed that all objects of touch were poisoned, the walls of the houses, the pavements of the streets, and the very handles of the doors. The populace were raised to a pitch of ungovernable fury. A strict watch was kept for the devil's emissaries, and any man who wanted to be rid of an enemy had only to say that he'd seen him besmearing a door with ointment. His fate was certain death at the hands of the mob. An old man, upwards of eighty years of age, a daily frequenter of the church of St. Antonio, was seen, on rising from his knees, to wipe with the skirt of his cloak the stool on which he was about to sit down. A cry was raised immediately that he was besmearing the seat with poison. 
a mob of women by whom the church was crowded seized hold of the feeble old man and dragged him out by the hair of his head with horrid oaths and imprecations he was trailed in this manner through the mire to the house of the municipal judge that he might be put to the rack and forced to discover his accomplices but he expired on the way many other victims were sacrificed to the popular fury one mora who appears to have been half a chemist and half a barber, was accused of being in league with the devil to poison Milan. His house was surrounded, and a number of chemical preparations were found. The poor man asserted that they were intended as preservatives against infection, but some physicians, to whom they were submitted, declared they were poison. Mora was put to the rack, where he for a long time asserted his innocence. He confessed at last, when his courage was worn down by torture, that he was in league with the devil and foreign powers to poison the whole city, that he had anointed the doors and infected the fountains of water. He named several persons as his accomplices, who were apprehended and put to a similar torture. They were all found guilty and executed. Mora's house was razed to the ground, and a column erected on the spot, with an inscription to commemorate his guilt. While the public mind was filled with these marvellous occurrences, the plague continued to increase. The crowds that were brought together to witness the executions spread the infection among one another. But the fury of their passions and the extent of their credulity kept pace with the violence of the plague. Every wonderful and preposterous story was believed. One, in particular, occupied them to the exclusion for a long time of every other. The devil himself had been seen. He had taken a house in Milan, in which he prepared his poisonous unguents and furnished them to his emissaries for distribution. One man had brooded over such tales till he became firmly convinced that the wild nights of his own fancy were realities. He stationed himself in the market-place of Milan, and related the following story to the crowds that gathered round him. He was standing, he said, at the door of the cathedral, late in the evening, and when there was nobody nigh, he saw a dark-coloured chariot drawn by six milk-white horses, stopped close beside him. The chariot was followed by a numerous train of domestics in dark liveries, mounted on dark-coloured steeds. In the chariot there sat a tall stranger of a majestic aspect. His long black hair floated in the wind, fire flashed from his large black eyes, and a curl of ineffable scorn dwelt upon his lips. The look of the stranger was so sublime that he was awed, and trembled with fear when he gazed upon him. His complexion was much darker than that of any man he had ever seen, and the atmosphere around him was hot and suffocating. He perceived immediately that he was a being of another world. The stranger, seeing his trepidation, asked him blandly, yet majestically, to mount beside him. He had no power to refuse, and before he was well aware that he had moved, he found himself in the chariot. Onwards they went, with the rapidity of the wind, the stranger speaking no word, until they stopped before a door in the high street of Milan. There was a crowd of people in the street, but, to his great surprise, no one seemed to notice the extraordinary equipage and its numerous train. From this he concluded that they were invisible. The house at which they stopped appeared to be a shop, but the interior was like a vast, half-ruined palace. He went with his mysterious guide through several large and dimly lighted rooms. In one of them, surrounded by huge pillars of marble, a senate of ghosts was assembled, debating on the progress of the plague. Other parts of the building were enveloped in the thickest darkness, illumined at intervals by flashes of lightning, which allowed him to distinguish a number of 
gibing and chattering skeletons, running about and pursuing each other, or playing at leapfrog over one another's backs. At the rear of the mansion was a wild, uncultivated plot of ground, in the midst of which arose a black rock. Down its sides rushed with fearful noise a torrent of poisonous water, which, insinuating itself through the soil, penetrated to all the springs of the city, and rendered them unfit for use. After he had been shown all this, the stranger led him into another large chamber, filled with gold and precious stones, all of which he offered him if he would kneel down and worship him, and consent to smear the doors and houses of Milan with a pestiferous salve which he held out to him. He now knew him to be the devil, and in that moment of temptation prayed to God to give him strength to resist. His prayer was heard. He refused the bribe. The stranger scowled horribly upon him. A loud clap of thunder burst over his head, the vivid lightning flashed in his eyes, and the next moment he found himself standing alone at the porch of the cathedral. He repeated this strange tale day after day, without any variation, and all the populace were firm believers in its truth. Repeated search was made to discover the mysterious house, but all in vain. The man pointed out several as resembling it, which were searched by the police, but the demon of the pestilence was not to be found nor the hall of ghosts, nor the poisonous fountain. But the minds of the people were so impressed with the idea that scores of witnesses, half crazed by disease, came forward to swear that they also had seen the diabolical stranger and had heard his chariot, drawn by the milk-white steeds, rumbling over the streets at midnight with a sound louder than thunder. The number of persons who confessed that they were employed by the devil to distribute poison is almost incredible. An epidemic frenzy was abroad, which seemed to be as contagious as the plague. Imagination was as disordered as the body, and day after day persons came voluntarily forward to accuse themselves. They generally had the marks of disease upon them, and some died in the act of confession. During the Great Plague of London in 1665, the people listened with similar avidity to the predictions of quacks and fanatics. Defoe says that at that time the people were more addicted to prophecies and astronomical conjurations, dreams and old wives' tales, than ever they were before or since. Almanacs and their predictions frightened them terribly. Even the year before the plague broke out they were greatly alarmed by the comet which then appeared, and anticipated that famine, pestilence or fire would follow. Enthusiasts, while yet the disease had made but little progress, ran about the streets, predicting that in a few days London would be destroyed. A still more singular instance of the faith in predictions occurred in London in the year 1524. The city swarmed at that time with fortune-tellers and astrologers, who were consulted daily by people of every class in society on the secrets of futurity. As early as the month of June 1523, several of them concurred in predicting that, on the first day of February, 1524, the waters of the Thames would swell to such a height as to overflow the whole city of London, and wash away ten thousand houses. The prophecy met implicit belief. It was reiterated with the utmost confidence month after month, until so much alarm was excited that many families packed up their goods and removed into Kent and Essex. As the time drew nigh, the number of these emigrants increased. In January, droves of workmen might be seen, followed by their wives and children, trudging on foot to the villages within fifteen or twenty miles to await the catastrophe. 
People of a higher class were also to be seen in wagons and other vehicles bound on a similar errand. By the middle of January, at least twenty thousand persons had quitted the doomed city, leaving nothing but the bare walls of their homes to be swept away by the impending floods. Many of the richer sort took up their abode on the heights of Highgate, Hampstead, and Blackheath, and some erected tents as far away as Waltham Abbey on the north and Croydon on the south of the Thames. Bolton, the prior of St. Bartholomew's, was so alarmed that he erected, at a very great expense, a sort of fortress at Harrow-on-the-Hill, which he stocked with provisions for two months. On the 24th of January, a week before the awful day which was to see the destruction of London, he removed thither, with the brethren and officers of the priory, and all his household. A number of boats were conveyed in wagons to his fortress, furnished abundantly with expert rowers, in case the flood, reaching so high as Harrow, should force them to go farther for a resting place. Many wealthy citizens prayed to share his retreat, but the prior, with a prudent forethought, admitted only his personal friends and those who brought stores of eatables for the blockade. At last the morn, big with the fate of London, appeared in the east. The wandering crowds were astir at an early hour to watch the rising of the waters. The inundation, it was predicted, would be gradual, not sudden, so that they expected to have plenty of time to escape as soon as they saw the bosom of old Thames heave beyond the usual mark. But the majority were too much alarmed to trust to this, and thought themselves safer ten or twenty miles off. The Thames, unmindful of the foolish crowds upon its banks, flowed on quietly as of yore. The tide ebbed at its usual hour, flowed to its usual height, and then ebbed again, just as if twenty astrologers had not pledged their words to the contrary. Blank were their faces as evening approached, and as blank grew the faces of the citizens to think that they had made such fools of themselves. At last night set in, and the obstinate river would not lift its waters to sweep away even one house out of the ten thousand. Still, however, the people were afraid to go to sleep. Many hundreds remained up till dawn of the next day, lest the deluge should come upon them like a thief in the night. On the morrow it was seriously discussed whether it would not be advisable to duck the false prophets in the river. Luckily for them, they thought of an expedient which allayed the popular fury. They asserted that, by an error, a very slight one, of a little figure, they had fixed the date of this awful inundation a whole century too early. The stars were right after all, and they, erring mortals, were wrong. The present generation of Cockneys was safe, and London would be washed away not in 1524, but in 1624. At this announcement, Bolton the Prior dismantled his fortress, and the weary emigrants came back. An eye-witness of the Great Fire of London, in an account preserved among the Herlian manuscripts in the British Museum, and published in the Transactions of the Royal Society of Antiquaries, relates another instance of the credulity of the Londoners. The writer, who accompanied the Duke of York day by day through the district included between the Fleet Bridge and the Thames, states that, in their efforts to check the progress of the flames, they were much impeded by the superstition of the people. Mother Shipton, in one of her prophecies, had said that London would be reduced to ashes, and they refused to make any efforts to prevent it. Footnote. This prophecy seems to have been that set forth at length in the popular life of Mother Shipton. When fate to England shall restore a king to reign as heretofore, great death in London shall be though, and many houses be laid low. 
and footnote. A son of the noted Sir Canon Digby, who was also a pretender to the gifts of prophecy, persuaded them that no power on earth could prevent the fulfilment of the prediction, for it was written in the great book of fate that London was to be destroyed. Hundreds of persons, who might have rendered valuable assistance and saved whole parishes from devastation, folded their arms and looked on. As many more gave themselves up, with a less compunction, to plunder a city which they could not save. Footnote. The London Saturday Journal of March 12, 1842, contains the following. An absurd report is gaining ground among the weak-minded that London will be destroyed by an earthquake on the 17th of March or St. Patrick's Day. This rumour is founded on the following ancient prophecies, one professing to be pronounced in the year 1203, the other by Dr. D., the astrologer, in 1598. Quote, in 1842, four things the sun shall view. London's rich and famous town, hungry earth shall swallow down. Storm and rain in France shall be, till every river runs a sea. Spain shall be rent in twain, and famine waste the land again. So say I, the monk of Dree, in the twelve hundredth year and three. End quote. Harleian Collection, British Museum, 800B, Folio 319. Quote, the Lord have mercy on you all, prepare yourselves for dreadful fall, of house and land and human soul, the measure of your sins is full. In the year one eight and forty-two, of the year that is so new, in the third month of that sixteen, it may be a day or two between, perhaps you'll soon be stiff and cold. Dear Christian, be not stout and bold, the mighty, kingly proud will see, this comes to pass as my name's thee. End quote. 1598. Manuscript in the British Museum. The alarm of the population of London did not on this occasion extend beyond the wide circle of the uneducated classes, but among them it equalled that recorded in the text. It was soon afterwards stated that no such prophecy is to be found in the Harleian manuscripts. End footnote. The prophecies of Mother Shipton are still believed in many of the rural districts of England. In cottages and servants' halls her reputation is great, and she rules the most popular of British prophets among all the uneducated or half-educated portions of the community. She is generally supposed to have been born at Knaresborough in the reign of Henry the Seventh, and to have sold her soul to the devil for the power of foretelling future events. Though during her lifetime she was looked upon as a witch, she yet escaped the witch's fate and died peaceably in her bed at an extreme old age near Clifton in Yorkshire. A stone is said to have been erected to her memory in the churchyard of that place with the following epitaph. Quoth, Here lies she who never lied, whose skill often has been tried. Her prophecies shall still survive and ever keep her name alive. End quote. Never a day passed, says her traditionary biography, quote, wherein she did not relate something remarkable, and that required the most serious consideration. People flocked to her from far and near. Her fame was so great. They went to her of all sorts, both old and young, rich and poor, especially young maidens, to be resolved of their doubts relating to things to come, and all returned wonderfully satisfied in the explanations she gave to their questions. End quote. Among the rest went the abbot of Beverley, to whom she foretold the suppression of the monasteries by Henry the Eighth, his marriage with Anne Boleyn, the fires of heretics in Smithfield, 
and the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots. She also foretold the accession of James I, adding that, with him, quote, From the cold north every evil should come forth. End quote. On a subsequent visit she uttered another prophecy, which, in the opinion of her believers, still remains unfulfilled, but may be expected to be realized during the present century. Quote, the time shall come when seas of blood shall mingle with a greater flood, great noise there shall be heard, great shouts and cries, and seas shall thunder louder than the skies. Then shall three lions fight with three, and bring joy to a people, honour to a king. That fiery year, as soon as over, peace shall then be as before, plenty shall everywhere be found, and men with swords shall plough the ground. End quote. But the most famous of all her prophecies is one relating to London. Thousands of persons still shudder to think of the woes that are to burst over this unhappy realm when London and Highgate are joined by one continuous line of houses. This junction, which, if the rage for building lasts much longer, in the same proportion as heretofore, bids fair to be soon accomplished, was predicted by her shortly before her death. Revolutions, the fall of mighty monarchs, and the shedding of much blood, are to signalize that event. The very angels, afflicted by our woes, are to turn aside their heads and weep for hapless Britain. End of chapter 5, part 1